people look back in 500 or 1,000 years, they're going to basically look back on the 21st century here and say, we essentially created a new civilization, frankly, where we essentially went all digital. We're going to be increasingly global, kind of working on a planetary scale, and ultimately we're going to be sustainable. But I'd say if we look at the next 25 years, it's essentially laying the foundation for much of that. Global finance has tipped. Over $1.2 trillion of money went into essentially what you can think of as the clean economy, clean energy, electric, electric vehicles alone had $350 billion went into it last year. But the point is we're talking trillions now of money going. So once you follow the money, once it starts happening, the kind of business and the economy morphs around that. And that's what we're seeing today. So I think the blue economy piece uh, is just only going to rise in its, in its centrality to this giant project of morphing the entire economy. You are a perfect American testbed, a nexus for innovation around all those issues around rising seat level and all the things related to that. You guys are it. New Orleans is an awesome place to live for culture, for artists, for all kinds of stuff. Make people aware of what the hell's happening here. It's already kind of happening. I'm starting to pick it up even just through you. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts, the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. Special thanks to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their financial and institutional support of Deep Blue Academy's education and research initiatives. Today, we are speaking with a globally renowned futurist and strategic foresight specialist whose seminal work in the mid-1990s as an editor in the early days of Wired Magazine, foresaw many of the technological, societal, and cultural innovations that would shape the world leading up to 2020. He is a journalist, keynote speaker, thought leader, and consultant working with industry and government leaders around the world to navigate the global challenges and transformations looming in the coming decades. His most recent project, The Great Progression, lays out in detail how a mix of key technological and societal tipping points are opening up new avenues of human progress and ultimately hope that as a species, we are on the verge of evolving to overcome the seemingly intractable challenges facing future generations. So Peter, it's great to have you here on the Blue Economy Primer. I know we've been uh, talking about getting you to New Orleans for a little while and glad that we could do it in person rather than online. So wonderful to have you here, particularly during the Mardi Gras season. Could you introduce yourself to our audience, please? First of all, happy to be here and happy to be here exactly in Mardi Gras. So that's like an awesome piece of the puzzle here. But uh, yeah, I'm Pete Lyden. Um, I have spent, uh, I went the last 25 years, basically my business has been thinking of the future, basically and helping people better understand it. I've done, I was part of the early Wired magazine with the founders there in the early digital revolution. I also work with some of the pioneers of what they call strategic foresight and scenario planning, thinking out systematically out there. I've done public speaking throughout America and the world on, you know, probably a keynote talk a, a month for 25 years. I've written books on the future, a couple of books, uh, influential books. I've done a bunch of articles. And uh, I have an advisory firm now, Reinvent Futures, that also spends a lot of time with senior leaders, helping them really think more systematically about the next 10 to 25 years. So I'm happy to be here to chat with you about how your world fits in that bigger picture. Great. Well, great to have you. So one of the neat things that I know we discovered and that is unique about your background is that I think right after college, you spent some time in uh, Birmingham, Alabama and actually worked out on the rigs on the Gulf. Can you tell us about that? 
Absolutely. It's dating myself a little bit here, but uh, when I got out of college, I wanted to see the world, travel the world. And so I hitchhiked literally down to Louisiana and figured out a way to get working on an oil rig uh, out in the Gulf of Mexico there. I used to go out of Venice, Louisiana there, spend three weeks on, a week off, kind of like a sailor. I got to know Louisiana quite well on those shore times, a lot of time in, in, in New Orleans. I uh, spent a lot of time there, made enough money then to actually literally travel uh, around the world for about a year and fed into a time where I was also foreign correspondent for a while in Asia for Newsweek. So anyhow, it's, it, it had a big launching point for me. And then when I actually first started journalism, before I got to that foreign correspondent kind of space, uh, my first job of journalism was in the Birmingham Post-Herald in Alabama. Spent a year and a half there, there roaming around Alabama, doing all kinds of stories and gotten to know the deep south here and spent a lot of time in New Orleans because it's the fun place to be. Great. Well, yeah, it's it's nice that you have that perspective that you can share with us when we get into some of these topics about technology, etc. So uh, one of the key projects that you worked on in your work as a futurist, or as you said, strategic foresight, uh, was the Long Boom Project, which has led to your more recent projects. So can you tell us a little bit about how that Long Boom Project came about and the then how that, that turned into the work with the transformation and the great progression? Well, in the early, think about it, in the early days, I was, again, working with the founders of Wired Magazine in the very early days, and I ended up running it as managing editor in the mid-90s. And in the, if people go back to that time, you know, mid-90s, uh, people did not understand how the digital economy was going to work, you know, how these goofball startups with goofy names like Amazon were going to amount to anything. Uh, and so there was a real sense of, like, how will this work over the next 10 to 25 years? And the second thing was, we forget, it was the beginning of globalization, though. So the Union had just kind of fallen, and, and, and China was just uh, opening up to the market. And so that whole story of how was globalization going to knit the plan together? And so myself and one of the kind of premier futurists of the time, Peter Schwartz, um, did a great cover story for, for Wired at the time, where we literally kind of projected out what was called the, what we called the long boom of how that technology was going to scale, the world was going to get knit together in different ways through globalization, and how we're going to ride a great tech and economic boom to 2020. And it happens that a lot of what we called 25 years ago played out. And by 2020, a lot of our predictions nailed it. And so I was asked uh, by several different places, but I just was asked to redo a, do a sequel, essentially. Hey, if I nailed it for the last 25 years, what about the next 25 and so I recently did a big magazine piece called The Great Progression, which you can read uh, online last uh, fall. I've been doing a lot of public speaking on it now. And uh, it is essentially looking out at the next 25 years and the he all the system changes we're going to go through, all the different technologies that are going to scale, and how I also think we're going into not just a long boom, but a, what could be a long boom squared. I think there's going to be so much uh, economic kind of growth here in the next 25 years that uh, really people are totally underestimating. So anyhow, we can get into that later. But um, that piece, the other thing about that piece I will say is um, it's really trying to come to terms with how, calling it the great progressions. I think we're opening up a great era of progress right here. I think we're actually on the verge here of being able to solve a lot of our great challenges, particularly climate change. And I do think uh, laying that whole story out, whether it's in that piece or in my talks, um, has been really helpful to people to see how it all could come together, and I think will. Can you give us sort of the big picture about what is in that, that futurist work with the great progression and the transformation? Kind of what are the broad brush sort of things that you're seeing and where we're headed in the next, 
I guess, 20 to 50 years. And I want to remind our listeners that we will have lots of links and references to some of this work that Peter's referencing, as well as to some of his uh, websites and ways to listen to some of our other's talks, and also the tremendous library of speakers and interviews that you've done through the, the, the various projects that you had. So mm-hmm. we'll have links for all that stuff that people can, can dig a little bit deeper. Well, first of all, I, 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 what, what I want to do is a, a positive reframe. There's so much gloom and doom out there. There's so much oh, the world's going to hell and it's sci-fi horror stories and dystopias that people think about the future. I, I think it's really wrong. And so the first thing to think about is uh, there are many positive things that have been happening in the last decade here that are moving in a very positive direction. And in fact, uh, there's a lot of new technologies that have now hit the tipping point to really start scaling. There's a lot of trends that are kind of kind of coming of age now and really starting to, to tip in, in positive directions. And I think it's really uh, a better way to think about what's happening is we're, we're opening up a new era of progress and that a lot of very positive things can come out of that, including the ability to kind of solve these, these challenges. What's problem what's a difficult thing is the 2020s are essentially the decade where we're watching many of the systems that have been in kind of place for the last 40 years how the economy worked how politics worked how you know the culture kind of operated are breaking down and and just fading and fading out of the picture but a lot of the new systems that are replacing them uh, you know, in terms of renewable energies or electric vehicles or kind of, you know, the millennials taking over the culture, the politics shifting in various ways. Those things are just emerging now. And so they aren't fully baked yet. It's not fully clear how all that's going to work. But they are. But but the key thing is these systems have tipped. These t- It's a tipping point. It's not a debate. Like the last 10, 10 years ago, what is a debate about whether we're going to go to electric cars or not or whether we're ever going to get to renewable energy and solar is ever going to work. That's 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 decided. That's happening. Global finance is tipped. Things are moving. And so what we're in is a crazy decade of fundamental system change across all these different systems, which requires a kind of a paradigm shift in thinking uh, we grew up and, and kind of came of age in, in your career uh, thinking the world worked one way. And then but we're essentially moving into a different way the world's going to work and how these new systems are working. And so you got to have to shift the paradigm and talk, how does that new world work? And that's I'm spending a lot of my time now with a lot of senior leaders in all kinds of different companies um, uh, trying to help them wrap their heads around these fundamental shifts happening. Now, the good news is these shifts are, again, moving in a positive direction, and we are hitting the point now where things are starting to scale. And so these changes that were theoretical a little bit ago um, or could have happened or wouldn't it be great if it happened are happening. And so now we're watching the scaling up going. Just like we watched from the mid-90s, the scaling up of digital technologies happen. And once you tip and once things start to get filled out, then when you, then you're on that ride, and we're in that now. And so I think over the next 25 years, you'll see this new world really come fully fully fill out. All these models actually get perfected and ultimately scale, and to the point where I think we will be able to really turn the corner on climate change by about 2050. The next 25 years is going to be an amazing time, but um, it's a time of tremendous innovation. And um, and really across three other technologies. I'll just mention this quickly and we move on to other things. But there's there's not just one technology boom going on like we rode last time we, there are three fundamental world historical new technologies coming on we've got a whole raft of the next phase of information technology which is let's represent it now by ai the ai era which is just we can begin to go in that direction there's all these new energy technologies you know the renewable energies but even on the horizon here fusion energy and all kinds of stuff that's going to open up in the next 25 years uh bringing up all kinds of new technologies in 
energy. And then there's the third one, which is essentially biotech or what they're starting to call synthetic biology, which is biological engineering. And that, again, with our understanding of the genome and all kinds of things now, is opening up a whole world of essentially, think of it as biotech. So you got infotech, energy tech, biotech, three of them fundamentally taking off at the same time, driving a tremendous amount of economic growth over the next 25 years. And so um, that's what we got to wrap our head around. We're wrap around our heads around it pretty fast. Are there any favorite statistics, numbers, benchmarks that you see that we have passed or we're near or things that are on the horizon to, that, that you'd like to cite? Just to, just to reinforce this tipping point thing, um, is you can, 10 years ago we could debate a lot of these things around clean energy or around electric vehicles and things like that, but, but we have now tipped in, in that uh, you're starting to watch the numbers take off. And so I'll take one example. Global finance has tipped. Over $1.2 trillion of money went into essentially what you can think of as the clean economy, clean energy. Electric, electric vehicles alone had $350 billion went into it last year in, in terms of how to shift the entire auto industry into, into electric vehicles. Uh, and so, But we've got $1.2 trillion in that. So that's a huge number. Now, we've got to get to about $4 trillion to, to scale up to really tip and solve the climate challenge and scale up all over the world. But the point is, we're talking trillions now of money going. So once you follow the money, once it starts happening, the kind of business and the economy morphs around that. And that's what we're seeing today. All kinds of other statistics, like, you know, electric vehicles right now. Uh, Europeans, 20% of all new cars now are, are electric vehicles in, in already in, in Europe and China. The United States has hit 5%, but we're fast catching up. We're basically starting to watch these. These numbers are not theoretical now. Uh, they're really actually happening. And uh, that's good for us, good for the planet. And I think it'll be good for the region too, which we can get into. Yeah, absolutely. So when I read the transformation and, and listened to your talk on it, I thought it was really neat the way you sort of made the parallel between the age of the enlightenment and kind of looking back on that and realizing the what an extraordinary time it was and that that is kind of what you're anticipating in the, in the character and the transformation is looking back from 2100 at the, at this period. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how maybe how you came up with that or, or what, what do you see as those sort of those parallels of what we will look back on as this this particularly promising and innovative age? Well, uh, like I say, I've continued to do since that long boom era, which, by the way, went into a book, went into multiple languages, written several books off that. But I do a lot of articles, and what you're referring to is a set of six articles I wrote in Medium called The Transformation, and it was really taking a, a kid born, a Gen Z kid, which just look around in your house, and you might, if you're, you know, it might be your kid, born in 2000, but he's writing um, at, in the year 2100, which, by the way, all those kids are going to last 100 years uh, easily, if not longer, given what we're knowing about healthcare. He looks back on this era from 2020 to 2050 and talks about what happened in his life to actually get to that. So that's the story you're talking about there. But I will say, without getting too trippy here, I would say what we're probably going through ultimately in the long lens of 
history, when people look back in 500 or 1,000 years, they're going to basically look back on the 21st century here and say, we essentially created a new civilization, frankly, where we essentially went all digital. Everything's kind of getting digitized to the point of all information. It's going to be, we're going to be increasingly global, kind of working on a planetary scale. And ultimately, we're going to be sustainable, a sustainable economy and society. Those are world historical shifts. Those are things that are going to take decades and decades to happen. But in essence, it's such a foundational shift in all the ways we're doing things that it's comparable to the last time we saw fundamental civilizational change, which was the Enlightenment, where we invented, you know, representative democracy or financial capitalism or the Industrial Revolution. I mean, those big, big, big meta innovations of that time, which frankly we're still running on today, were in this century basically going to supersede them pretty profoundly with different ways of capitalism works, different ways, or I think our democracy will work, all kinds of things will happen in that time. But in the short, that's the whole century, goes through you know the next you know 75 years. But I would say if we look at the next 25 years, it's essentially laying the foundation for much of that. And uh, we got our hands full just for the next 25 years, but ultimately what we're on is a project that will be seen in literally is, you know, in the lens of history is one of the most memorable moments in human civilization humans have come up with. And that's basically if we can solve the climate change, if we can kind of work as a planet, if we can kind of make these fundamental technology shifts, then we'll have arrived. Well, I certainly found it compelling. And, and again, we'll have uh, links to all those those resources. So as you know, and, and you've been following uh, our work since uh, for a number of years now, uh, with Deep Blue Institute and Deep Blue Academy focused on the Gulf Coast and the potential for New Orleans in terms of building the ecosystems and the the sectors that we need to pursue some of these advances. What do you see as the potential or the unique role or, or ways that the uh, blue economy is related to your work and the, the potential for development of those ocean-related regenerative uh, technologies? It's absolutely a critical piece of the puzzle. I mean, I mean, I would say the blue economy is nestled in the broader kind of economy, but uh, of essentially, w- one way to think about what's happening in the next 25 years is, is everything is getting reorganized around climate change, the climate challenge and the ultimate evolution of essentially a sustainable economy and society. And if you think of it that way, um, then the blue economy is a huge and critical piece of it. I mean, you know, basically everybody living on the coasts of of the the world, which I think you said is something like 25% of the planet, um, is affected directly on that. But also all the world is affected on that. I mean, you really got to deal with even thinking in geoengineering terms, like to the how the acidification of, of the of the oceans or the kind of heating of the oceans, uh, the coral reefs, all that kind of stuff affects everybody in the atmosphere and all kinds of stuff. So I think the blue economy piece uh, is just only going to rise in its, in its centrality to this giant project of morphing the entire economy. Uh, a lot of the specific technologies that you're wrestling with are absolutely critical. Um, you know, uh, and I think those uh, pieces that you're exploring in this podcast, which, by the way, I've been listening to, and I've also been watching your work before this, too, uh, you're, you're kind of doing exactly what you need to do is now start drilling down harder, identifying what's really happening, getting to the innovators who are really kind of making shit happen, and um, getting deep into their heads about what they can do. 
So on the Gulf Coast here, which again, you've got some familiarity with and, mm-hmm. and some firsthand experience with the uh, primary uh, energy sector as it's uh, been leading the, the economy here for uh, going on a century now. Uh, what do you see as the particular potential or place that a New Orleans and the Southeast Louisiana estuary region could hold in these global trends? Well, I'm coming from, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, the Silicon Valley world. I've kind of watched the innovation world of, out there work. And it kind of its relationship to water is really around droughts. And we're trying to really think fundamentally about desalinization, all kinds of stuff, too. But I would say we don't have the same kind of challenges, you could say, on the coastlines that you do down here in, in New Orleans. And that, in fact, is a microcosm for what Florida is kind of going through and all kinds of places, from Bangladesh to the Pacific Islands, all kinds of stuff. You are a perfect kind of, if it came down to an American test bed, a kind of, and a kind of a nexus for innovation around all those issues around rising sea levels and all the things related to that, uh, you guys are it. Uh, and it feels like you got an opportunity here to really uh, become that kind of nexus and be identified as the place to go in ways that I think other hubs of innovation like San Francisco, the Bay Area, or Boston, or some of these other places uh, uh, are not gonna don't have the capacity to do it there. Aren't really particularly suited for it. And I think there's, so. I think the idea of re identifying this place as a hotbed of that kind of innovation is is extremely powerful idea, and I think it's really needed. Uh, I also think you know America is really um, does often break ground on the new innovations that do scale globally. I mean, if, if you had to think of what is the role of America, without being too uh, kind of uh, chauvinistic about it, is Americans are just great at innovation. And we have been for literally, <laughs> depends when you, from the beginning of the country, but you can certainly say that throughout the 20th century into the 21st, and I really think uh, more so than, you know, looking to the Chinese or looking to some other regions that are going to solve this, uh, you know, maybe it's the Dutch. And a lot of people are going to have pieces of the puzzle here. But I think American ingenuity applied to this fundamental challenge of rising sea levels uh, and all the kind of transitioning, essentially traditional oil-based, carbon-based industries into kind of more clean-based, kind of sustainable-based industries. Those are challenges that everybody around the world is going to have to come to terms with in some way. And I think the more you can break ground here, the more you can showcase this, the more you can kind of catalyze resources here, the way you can really get the word out, kind of like you're starting to do with this podcast, uh, the better everyone's going to be. And I think there's there's a great opportunity to do that here. Knowing that Bay Area startup scene and all that. One of the things that we're certainly focused on with uh, Deep Blue is innovation ecosystems. Right. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, what are the unique aspects of the Bay Area and things that we sort of lived and breathed and 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 got to know during the last 20 years of the of the Bay Area. What do you think are some things that you're seeing either you know, specifically potential for the Gulf region, but what are some things that you think a region like New Orleans uh, and the Gulf Coast can learn and, and benefit from, from that Bay Area culture, that startup culture, that freedom to fail, the, all those cliches that we, that we hear in the Bay Area? I mean, again, I've been part of the Bay Area for over, I would say, 30 years and watched it very closely. I'm in the middle of it, ground zero with Wired and all the different things I've done over the years there. Um, 
And I also have done a lot of public speaking all over the country, all over the Europe and occasionally out in the world. Um, and everybody's always asking, you know, what's the secret sauce of the Silicon Valley? How does it actually work? And, you know, it's, it's actually not that complicated, but it does have some fundamental things that I think New Orleans has and that you could actually recreate here or, or it's already here. One thing is what, what started it is it's just a cool place to live. I mean, wh- why did it all happen around San Francisco? Well, it's just San Francisco is just an awesome place to live, just like New Orleans is an awesome place to live for culture, for artists, for all kinds of stuff. So there's a foundational link. So you can't necessarily do it anywhere like Omaha, Nebraska or something isn't going to be that hub necessarily. But you got to be a cool place to be with history, but also a collection of characters. That starts it. Second thing is you got to tolerate, you know, creativity and innovation. You got to welcome it. You got to be open to it. And that, again, I think is something you see here through the arts and all kinds of different cuisines and all the things that you do here. And just the characters you see on the street, that's that's a good innovation mentality. Um, but it doesn't just work with that. You got to basically coalesce those people, like f- connect them, uh, cross-fertilize them. You got to appreciate the differences and diversity and different perspectives. And so having ways to kind of connect those people and gather those people. And it sounds like you're doing it here with these these new societies you're working on and these new networks and these new clubs you have. I think that's a key thing. You also have to have money. And so really one of the underappreciated things about the Bay Area is essentially it has um, a lot of um, money that's, that's open to risk and willing to bet and to bet big. And you got to keep a risk, open to risk culture going through the whole ecosystem, which is... Uh, so, for example, I've had two, two of my own startups. Neither of them were able to scale up in the traditional way that you kind of have a big exit. But uh, but that is never held against me. It's held like, oh, my God, he tried. He had, he's two, three, you know, he's, he's his third startup in, you know, kind of because people realize in the Bay Area that, again, it's, kind of, it's that failure is actually just a learning process. And also the reason it's, a, you know, only one startup in 10 is going to make it big. But the idea is nine others are trying something that no one's ever done before. That's why it's called a startup. It's like it's not like you're opening in a convenience store down the street. and You know how to do that. It's been done a million times. You know, you're trying some new thing that no one's ever tried. And so what the hell? It's probably going to fail. But damn, it's going to be fun. And we're going to learn a ton. And ultimately, you're going to get seasoned enough. So the next one you do, boy, you'll really be able to take it off and refine it. So anyhow, I do think. A lot of these pieces are, are, are could be coalesced relatively, you know, it's not easy, but it's 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 not uh, magic and it's not also brain surgery. It's just kind of make the mix work and start making it happen. And again, the other thing is critical, critical mass. Once you get a critical mass, it starts to scale. It's, the network effect kicks in. People want to come there. People hear about it. People want to move there. People, you know, anyhow, all the stuff that happens around that. And I think... So a lot of it is also you got to just make uh, make things uh, make people aware of what the hell's happening here. And it's already kind of happening. I'm starting to pick it up even just through you. Uh, it's just people don't maybe know enough about it, and you got to start to get that ideas out. Yeah, and that's certainly one of the things that we're trying to focus on uh, is building that narrative of what's possible here, what's going on, and there are there really are a lot of great things going on. So in our previous discussions with people like Michael Hecht and Tim Williamson really touching on some uh, some similar themes that you're talking about in terms of those finance pieces and uh, the creativity and establishing leadership and all sorts of things. So uh, good good to hear what are 
some some clear ways that we can move forward and and codify and solidify those things that are going on here. I know that there's some particular technologies that you, that you see are going to have a disproportionate impact on some of these changes. Could you talk a little bit more about your interest in synthetic biology in the context of the? Yeah, this is interesting. When you think of the blue economy, there's very you know specific ways you can think about it. Uh, you know, floating platforms and you know regenerative you know wetlands and uh, you know desalinization plants and you know there's a bunch of things that play into that. geoengineering, which many of which we can talk about actually, and I think could be really hotbeds of innovation here uh, out of your place here in New Orleans. But um, but there is a new one that I think a lot of people are underappreciating. I, I talked to you about that there's really three world historical technologies that people look back for for centuries and say, oh, that's when that started. Um, there is this next phase of infotech and AI, and that's affecting all kinds of things, but will affect your world too. Uh, there's the energy tech, which is much more fundamental. The shift that's going on here is more central. But I will say this biotech, kind of the next advance of biotech, uh, we're in the earlier stages and in those other two more mature kind of industries that are starting to really scale in big ways now. But it's, I think, a really profound one. So if if you think about it this way, is um, for all of human history, uh, humans have essentially engineered, human engineering has been engineering physical things, uh, you know, uh, parts or inert kind of materials that you put into parts that make machines that kind of in, you engineer a thing, right? Well, we finally, just in the last 20 years, have come to the point where we can actually understand the human genome on how genomes work, and we can cheaply uh, get the genome of every living thing and can. It's like a thousand bucks now to get your own genome done. It's going to get down to about a hundred bucks this next few years. Um, so we know how to crack, look at the genomes. That's the, you know, basically the coding of human beings. And then we have now learned in the last 10 years how to cheaply and easily edit them and tweak them. This is this whole CRISPR breakthrough, which has happened about a decade ago. Um, and we're finally getting to be able to, 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 to engineer these, the code of living things. Uh, and so the, that opens up what you call biological engineering. So we are now entering for the first time ever, humans are now able to engineer all living things. Well, there's a lot of living things. There's plants, there's animals, there's humans themselves. And it can get into the fundamental code of genetics, but it's also we're, we're learning about biology in such a fundamental level, how proteins work, how cells work, how things like all these pieces that are allowing us to engineer deeper into the fabric of how things work. And so because of this, we're starting to think about a world where we could create materials like you could essentially genetic engineer wood to be more fire resistant. You can be stronger. You could, and basically wood could actually replace, you know, iron and, and, and uh, steel and concrete and things that we've traditionally used for buildings. You could actually have be growing essentially a whole different levels of materials um, that could be used in a kind of more bio-friendly way. It's funny, it's, it's, it, we're manipulating nature, but we're essentially within the system of essentially in sync with nature. And if you don't, if you set aside the ethical side of how you can misuse these things, but assuming we can get the guardrails on it, like we've done every other technology, you could actually re-engineer the living world around us in ways that'd be much more sustainable. It would be uh, from the food we eat to the things we build in buildings to basically all kinds of pieces, let alone what it can do to human health and longevity and all that that's also happening in healthcare. But what I'm just trying to say is I think in when you think about the sustainable world that we're building over the next many 
many decades and through this century, increasingly you're going to have to open up to what, I, what they're calling synthetic biology or biological engineering. There's different ways people talk about it. And uh, I think, I'm not sure exactly how that would apply to here, but I would basically open up a portion of your thinking that uh, that same kind of mentality, those same kind of tools that are giving us these crazy tools to actually, you know, you know, we saw what had happened with the mRNA kind of vaccine happened. It's like within the course of less than a year, we were able to transform the whole way we did we did vaccines and scale all over the planet in ways that, you know, we could never done before. Why? Because we understand how the genome worked and we understood how to manipulate the kind of response to that gene, the, 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 the genome uh, of these uh, of the virus, and essentially we were able to snap it down. And now that's just a tweaking of the. But we couldn't. We didn't even know what the genome was 25 years ago, right? So I mean, the thing is, we're starting to get down into a different era of manipulation of things and a new technology set of technologies that's going to impact not sure exactly how it's going to be here but you could imagine re-engineering the ocean coral you could basically you know some kind of responses into how you know the ocean operates how you could and it kind of also gets into the broader case of geoengineering because when you start to manipulate living things you are essentially getting into the larger category of re-engineering which i do think Given the rising sea levels and all the other challenges in this blue economy, we're going to also have to breach and get into and uh, in a responsible way, but way that. But I think that when you really get into it, could be a big, big category. Uh, not the biotech so much or the biosynthetic biology. Stay open to that. But I think the geoengineering thing, I think, could be a really interesting space for you guys too. Yeah. So I'd love to touch on that a little bit more. Kind of where you see that uh, we were. We were talking of one of the a couple books that I've been enjoying and just finishing up are Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock and Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future. And both of those touch on global scale geoengineering and how that potentially is a companion piece with carbon drawdown and all of the things that we need to do in terms of reducing carbon, knowing that we haven't even peaked on CO2 releases yet. So do you have any particular thoughts on that geoengineering space and how it's, I think, been evolving very quickly and kind of where we're headed with that in the coming years? Well, yeah, I think I do. I mean, again, I, I cut my teeth throughout school in the, uh, the, 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 the oil rigs out there. But, you know, essentially the oil companies, uh, you know, were operating at geoengineering scale kind of operations for the last century. Right. I mean, it, it's like human beings extracting that out of the all over the planet and then putting it through refining processes. You know, ultimately it did have this negative effect of, oh, we're releasing CO2 that... Uh, we hadn't really thought through, and it's basically leading to global warming. But the point being is, um, those were like unbelievably historical scale industrial operations, and many of them rooted here in Louisiana or the Gulf Coast here. And it seems to me you could imagine repurposing essentially that scale of industrial production or industrial kind of capability towards ambitious geoengineering projects, which um, I do think we're going to have to get to. And again, this gets tricky. And I know there's a lot of environmentalists and stuff that people that get all kind of wigged out a little bit when you think about geoengineering. But to my mind, and it, I, I don't know where you fall exactly, you implied it a little bit here, is I, I do think we're, we're not going to be able to um, ultimately pull off the kind of decarbonization process in fast enough, quick enough, and thoroughly enough 
without some kind of probable geoengineering techniques used. There's a lot of debate on what those are. But some of them could actually involve the same kind of skill sets that the oil industry's been using. So I'll give you one. I mean, you mentioned Ken Stanley Robinson's book, which is fantastic. Book. Both those books, by the way, are fantastic books. But he really goes deep into, oh, one of the biggest problems is essentially the glaciers both in Antarctica and you could and also in the Arctic Circle kind of um, essentially are melting faster but one of the things where they're melting is down on the ground under these 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 glaciers and because of the water that's accumulating down there it's allowing them to slide off these shelves into the ocean which of course then you just lose them totally and ultimately we're losing these crazy big ice shelves but it's possible that if you tap down there using almost like the oil industry's technology, you could suck that water out and get those giant glaciers to just sit more firmly without that lubrication of that liquid water. It's actually they just would set right down back on there and they wouldn't slide off and you wouldn't have that accelerated runoff and you wouldn't actually lose these priceless kind of sheets of ice that we need. And so the thing is, you could imagine the oil industries, instead of like going to the kind of crazy reaches of the Congo or crazy reaches of Alaska to kind of tap oil, you could imagine them going to the Arctic and all kinds of places and tapping it out for, for completely opposite reasons, but very si similar reasons. And so everybody get redeployed. It's kind of the same engineering skills, the same kind of up and down the food chain, wages and you know good packages and executives moving stuff around and logistics people making it all happen. Anyhow, the thing is that you can imagine without a lot of imagination, it's just pretty straightforward shifting the focus of an industry that has really defined this place for you know 100 years or more. Um, you know, but redefining it and mm -hmm. just putting on a different challenge. And uh, and it's also not just that. It's a lot of, you know, living off the water, you know, off getting, you know, housing, floating cities or platforms that kind of deal with the oil. I mean, all these oil rigs that I was, you know, getting helicoptered out to, in the, you know, 40 years ago. Um, those structures were amazing structures. They were in the middle of the Gulf, and we were living, you know, all these 40 guys out there for, you know, three weeks at a time, and helicopters coming in and out, and who knew what was happening? But it, inside that, it was a fantastic kind of operation. But, you know, using those skills to kind of scale it closer to the land or kind of allow those kind of living spaces to kind of adjust or to kind of anchor it in the ground <laughs> under the sea that you might have needed to do any all the transportation between them the, all that stuff uh it's it's a totally use that skill set in a different way in a way that could actually be make a shitload of money i mean this is the other thing about it, is like it, it, it we are shutting down carbon energy in a pretty aggressive way and i think we have to do that but there is an unbelievable amount of ways to make money. If you can't think of it this way, the world is going to basically go in the space of about 25 to max 50 years from essentially one fundamentally foundational you know, energy source based in carbon to one that is going to be not based on carbon. But that transition is just trillions and trillions of dollars is essentially going to be made in that transition. And energy companies formerly called oil companies, could be, play a big part in that transition if they did, uh, as opposed to kicking and screaming and kind of delaying it, you could imagine aggressively point, pointing. And I think a lot of them are starting to do that. Uh, I certainly have seen this. I'll tell you one thing. I've been doing a lot of speaking to the auto industry. And again, five years ago, even 10 years ago, for sure, you couldn't get anybody in the auto industry to think electric cars were going to be anything more than a curiosity until Elon Musk cracked the model, startup, cracks the model, shows how it's done. 
And now the entire industry has shifted there. So I'm now speaking to the auto industry and they're all just wanting to know how, how is it going to work? Where is it going? How are we going to you know, build out the infrastructure of all the charging? How, who is going to do it? I mean, and, and, and so they're looking to guys like me who explained how the last crazy big tech build out around digital technologies happened. And the comp, those goofball start companies became trillion dollar companies, right? Google and Amazon and the like. Um, I'm trying to explain how we're in the beginning of that exact same thing around electric vehicles or around kind of clean energies and stuff. And so those same kind of things are going to take off and have trillions of dollars of revenues. And again, whether that comes from the legacy oil industry or the legacy right now, uh, auto industry is fast following the kind of startups, but I think you can imagine in the energy sector uh, a fast following of the whole sector, of which this region has been, you know, very dependent and actually been rooted in. But it doesn't mean they can't play a big role in the next kind of build out here, which is coming. It's just think of it as energy. It doesn't matter if it's carbon or clean. Talking to James Martin of Gulf Wind Technology and, and other folks in the region that are focused on things like offshore wind. There's some very interesting dots yeah. to connect here in terms of things that are already happening. And depending on how you define the geoengineering, the potential for underground carbon sequestration in the region is actually really high. And that's in part related to uh, previous oil extraction and the salt cavities and oil cavities and all that that are below ground. So well, definitely. Well, let, me, let me say one thing about that, which I think is really interesting. Thing. And I go around a lot in my talks trying to explain this to people. It's like, it's like, one of the reasons people are so pessimistic about the future is they, they totally discount the human ingenuity or the ability of innovation to solve and about humans' problem-solving capabilities. And it's just like once you essentially set new North Stars in an economy and say, this is where we're going, this is how it's happening. And once you've tipped and, you know, money's the global finance is moving there and the kind of conventional wisdom is moving there and the government's starting to move there. I mean, everything is kind of moving that direction. I would argue around climate that's happened now, finally. Couldn't have said that maybe even five or ten years ago. But now that that's happened, now you've just turned hundreds of thousands, millions of brains, hundreds of millions of brains towards solving that problem, making money in that problem, sure, for their own uses. But essentially, they're now on to the next problem. And it's just going to open up an incredible amount of innovation. And just like if you would have said in the mid-90s, well, how uh, are we ever going to get to where everyone will have a cell phone and be connected to the Internet? And who's going to ever get that bandwidth to people on the Internet in, you know, in a phone? We didn't even have phones. We didn't even have wireless Internet. We did, we did all that kind of stuff. It was just an idea of how we could think we could do it. You just set those out there. And, of course, everybody stampeded to that. And ultimately, some we had winners and others not. And pretty soon, 25 years later, we're all walking around with supercomputers in our hands, wirelessly connected all over the planet. Like we said 25 years ago, that was going to happen. And how did we get there? Well, we got there now. Looking back, you see how we got there. But from the time in the front end, it was really hard to see it. You had to kind of sketch it out. And that's people like me were trying to do that. And people were kind of wrapping their heads around it going, yeah, I guess I can see how that would work. And that's how our early work at that period was very influential. And I think we're watching that. And this decade of the 2020s is just going to be a head spinning amount of these kind of system changes and these kind of paradigm shifts in how we think the world works. And I think we'll look back on it and we'll say, oh, it was obvious. But right now, we're just in the crazy kind of transition. With your work related to that, with the great progression, what's next? What's on the horizon? What do you have going on that, that maybe we didn't uh, talk about here? That's, uh, you well, I, I told you, I, I, last fall, I came out with this, this piece, which is very 
was getting a lot of attention called the Great Progression. It's 2025 to 2050. It's looking at the next 25 years. And it was a very broad brush kind of look across many different fields and uh, both in technology, about the economy and business, how it's going to change, how politics and governance, how geopolitics are going to change. It was a comprehensive look at the next 25 years. And it, from a po relatively positive perspective of, of how this, what I see as a great era of progress is opening up. Now, for me, that was a broad brush stretches. And I can, in an hour, talk, lay that out, or you can read the piece, which is 10,000 word piece. But what I'm going to do now is I'm doing a, about to launch a series of events uh, where I go into each and one of these fundamental, these key fields that are going to go through this big transformation in the next 10 to 25 years. And I'm going to look at someone and get them to really talk to me about what's really going on in that field, what's probably going to happen in the next 10 years, what's possible to achieve in the 25 years to kind of, and then ultimately what we should do now. And I'm going to do that systematically through all kinds of different fields, like so the different technologies. So you'll do one in the biotech, you'll do one in AI, you'll do it on this, but also the economy and all blue economy will do one on that. And then what I'm trying to do is, uh, it'll be a podcast out of that. And ultimately I'm going to write up every month, uh, uh, kind of a, essentially on Substack, a an article think of it as, or an essay I think of it as, of what we're learning as we go. So I would like to just go deeper into all these fields, fill out the kind of pieces of this great progression, and then uh, pass it on to anyone who wants to follow that and track that, listen to those podcasts, and also uh, follow those that writing. And ultimately, I think I'll probably end up with another, doing another book on this, uh, which will kind of be a sequel to my Long Boom book. And uh, at that point... Uh, that's got my hands full for the next few years. Is there anything else that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you think is relevant to our conversation? It's just reminding people what an extraordinary, almost privilege it is to be living at this time. As much as the people feel anxious or distraught or kind of confused or what all the different emotions you might have, I think people really will in, in, in 50, 100, 500 a thousand years from now, I think they're really going to look back at them this era, this kind of middle of the twenty first century as really just an extraordinary moment in human history. It'll rank up there with you know Roman Empire and all of these different kind of moments where you know where humans really have rose to a challenge and did something fundamentally different and was an explosion of creativity, explosion of innovation uh, that it will go down. And I do think we're watching in the biggest picture a world historical story as the world is increasingly going digital in all things it is operating increasingly at a global scale on a planetary level and with climate change will only drive that further and ultimately it's gonna we're making a transition which we've never been able to do up till now is a, to sustainable everything those things are world historical and once you go over those thresholds you only do that once you know that's what humans are going to be doing if we're going to be on this planet for the next bunch of centuries we have to be Essentially, work at at a global scale, operate sustainably, and you're part of this literally historic story. And um, so it's exciting. It's a, it's an opportunity. It's something we should be proud of and privileged to be at. And I just want to drive home to people that that kind of recognition that what you're doing is not just you know earning a living or just uh, figuring out how to improve your community, but you're you're really operating in a in something that'll be remembered for literally centuries to come. And uh, and uh, 
if that doesn't motivate you, I don't know what no. will. <laughs> well, it's it's great to talk to you and and hear this sort of optimism and and all the possibilities that that you see on the horizon. So, really appreciate you taking the time and joining us. And it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation. And we'll look forward to. Uh, following the work that you're doing with the great progression and uh, maybe have you back in the future to talk about how that's going. Love to do that. And thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Please help us spread the word and be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy, where you can find all of our available episodes, access important links and supporting information for each episode, Send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics. Get more information about our community engagement initiatives and join our mailing list, as well as make a much appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research mission. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Train Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizon of the blue economy. Thank you.